the debate over New York's new bail reform law continues to rage. Critics rail that it has allowed dangerous criminals free to commit new crimes because it has eliminated cash bail for most low-level offenses and nonviolent felonies and robberies. But while that story plays out, this week on 880 In-Depth, we'll look at the next front on the criminal justice reform plate in New York, parole reform, and how it will likely be just as controversial. I'm Tim Scheld, and we're about to spend some time with the architect of New York State's proposed parole reform, Bronx State Senator Gustavo Rivera. His passion for criminal justice reform and fairness in the system will jump right through the microphone at you. We sat down with the Democratic State Senator for an in-depth view of parole in New York State. Parole is not supposed to be about further punishment of people. It is supposed to be about assessing whether someone is ready to return to society. I have been talking about issues of parole fairness for a long time. And we think that it's um, gaining some steam because of the makeup in the state legislature has allowed for it to come to fore. Certainly. To a certain, to a certain mm-hmm. degree. I mean, back, I remember even back in 2017 when we were still in the minority, meaning the Democratic Conference, which I currently belong to and I've always been a member of, we were not in the majority for a long time, but now that we are in the majority, uh, we are talking about it more. But I remember back in 2017, where there were some changes to the parole board, when new people were assigned and a couple of people who have been, who had been members of the parole board for a long time, um, but who had, who saw themselves, and you could tell by the way that they expressed themselves in parole board, the way that they. Uh, wrote the decisions, the way that they interacted with people who were inside, they saw their role as I'm looking at you as somebody who's been incarcerated, you will remain incarcerated. Some of those meetings took minutes, right? Did I, did I read? Without, yes, some of them took minutes. I, a few years ago, I traveled up to the Fishkill Correctional Facility to be able to, uh, to sit for a whole day. I sat in a parole board room where two parole board members Uh, because the board, uh, one of the things is that you have to have at least two people, but if you have two people as parole board members and one of them says yes, one of them says no, then the person stays inside, right? But you, you, so you have for a long time during Governor Cuomo's uh, reign, there has been not enough people uh, appointed to the parole board. So right now there's only 12 members when statutorily you could have up to 19. So when you have... Uh, prisons all over the state that are doing parole boards, you have people who have to travel five, six, seven hours to be able to just get there uh, before, you know, so so some of these boards, oh, you only have two people on them. So I traveled to Fishkill and sat for a whole day and, and, and sat in a whole bunch of parole board meetings just to see what the hearings were like, to be able to just sat quietly in the back, asked no questions, just listened. And, um, excuse me, while I certainly recognize that my presence there probably changed uh, what actually occurred. It did give me a sense of the type of, you know, how difficult the job this is for parole board commissioners, and I don't deny that, but how much we have to rethink this entire process. It should not be about further punishing someone. That has already been done by a judge and jury, uh, by the process that they ultimately, that they if, that they've went to at the beginning of their experience in the criminal justice system. Now that they're at the end, 
the process should be different. It is about assessing, have you learned from your mistakes? Have you accepted responsibility? Can you become a member, a productive member of society? Are you a danger if you go back to it? And if the answer to any of that is, yes, you've learned from your mistakes. Yes, you've changed as a person. You can, you have a place to go and live and work and you are not going to recidivate. You're not going to come back here. Then you know what? We should let you out. This plan is something called the Fair and Timely Parole Act. Parole, in case you didn't know, is the early release of a prisoner who has served a significant amount of their sentence. Release is on the promise of living under certain conditions, including not committing any more crimes and regularly checking in with the system. So the main thing that, that, that happens now, the way that the law is written, uh, it allows, it basically allows a parole board commissioner to just basically make the, just rely strictly on what they call the instant offense that refers to the crime that was originally committed. So whether the crime was committed a year ago or 20 years ago, and more importantly, currently, regardless of what the individual has done in the time that they have been inside the system, they're just basically, you know, the, the, the way that the law is currently written, it says that if you were to, if I as a parole board commissioner were to let you out, then that would be disrespectful to the law. It, there's a particular phrase that right now escapes me, but it's a, basically it means it, the way the current law is written, you basically, me letting you out as a, as, a, as a person who is currently incarcerated, if I let you out, then that would be a disrespect to the law. And so the problem with this is that it conceives of the system strictly as a punitive one, which is ironic when we call these facilities correctional facilities. Uh, we're supposed to say, you know, the, the reason why the Fair and Timely Parole Act is necessary is because, first of all, I believe in redemption. I believe that you as an individual should not be judged by the worst thing that you have ever done. You can change. And if someone has demonstrated that they can change, now I'm not saying that there are not knuckleheads out there or inside prison who are never going to accept responsibility, who are never going to move on, and who are going to be a danger to society, but that is exceedingly rare. And we should not build a criminal justice system based on those cases. We should say that if you have done your time, if you have accepted responsibility for your crime, if you have done everything that we allow you to do inside prison to educate yourself, you've demonstrated that you can be a better individual, that you have accepted responsibility, then, hey, let's allow you to come outside. The way that the parole, that the law is currently written as far as the responsibility of those individuals who are parole board commissioners is that they just should not assess strictly the, the instant offense, the thing that they originally did, whatever the person is in prison for. That certainly could be part of the consideration. But the problem is that the way the law is currently written, those individuals who don't necessarily want to let people out, and there are many of them, who just view someone who's in prison and they sh as, it, as if they should remain there for the rest of their lives, and they act like it. You, when, you, when you read some of these transcripts, there was a, there was a guy named um, Smith. Uh, I, forget his, I forget his first name. But he is a dude who served in the parole board for like 20 years. And, uh, and the governor uh, put him up, uh, and then he didn't actually, you know, I questioned him, this is back in 2017, and I just questioned him at length about what he had said on the record to some of the individuals that he was supposed to be was this considering. At a, hearing, at a hearing? Yeah, it mm -hmm. was a public hearing. So 
there was a hearing in the Crime Victims, Crimes and Corrections right. Committee back in 2017, which is still, it's publicly available, not the best video quality, but, you know, we, we're getting better in the Senate in that regard. <laughs> but there was a whole conversation that I had with him, and I said, I'm going to read you some of the transcript of the interactions that you've had with people. Why would you feel that this is professional? Why would you refer to someone this way? It, it's as if though the, he was saying with his disdain in his interaction with this person who was incarcerated, it's like, I don't care what you've done since you committed this crime. As far as I'm concerned, you did this whatever 15, 20, 30 years ago. That's it. You're done. You're never going to leave here. And the fact that there were people who were sitting in the parole board, and even there's a couple now, less, but there's a couple now, because of the way the law is currently written, they can do that. And they're within their right. So if there's a dozen people on the on the parole board, it really can be the luck of the draw. You could get a real hard ass, excuse the expression, or you mm -hmm. could get someone that may be feeling the way that that your reform yeah. is going in that direction. Yeah. As a Bronx side, I've never heard such language, so please <laughs> refrain, <laughs> refrain from using such language. But but in all seriousness, it, it, that's so that's one issue that you don't know who you're going to get. So it might be one of these individuals that again just says, you know, if you're if you're in here, you should remain in here. But also the other issues I remember, as I mentioned earlier, is because you don't, because you have so few, there's currently 12, we could have up to 19. So there's seven slots that remain un, uh, unfilled. Uh, so now you have, you have to have a parole board. You might need three people, which is preferable because you have an even number. If one says yes, one says no, then the person's staying inside. But if you have three, you can at least have an opportunity for an individual to say, you know, you've you've convinced two of them that you can go back to society and one of them no, but two to one means you go out. But you don't have that. So you have an ability, and, and by the way, the amount of information that has to be processed by each one of these parole board commissioners, and I, and I, and I say it's not an easy job. Right. I've seen, the. I'm, I'm making a sign with my hands here, but we're looking at like, you know, like a six or seven inch stack of papers. I've seen it in front of them related to one case which can be all of the documents related to the original crime that they committed, the, um, the, the, the things that they've done as far as educational programs and what have you while they've been inside, letters in support or in opposition to their release, etc. And they have, to, they have a limited amount of time to take in all of this information. And then they have like 5, 10, sometimes 20 minutes with somebody who's incarcerated and they have to make a determination. So it's a tough job for them. We should lessen the amount of work that they have by, by putting more parole board commissioners on there. Uh, and we should, you know, kind of change some of the parameters so that it is an easier job for them so that they can see more people. Cause ultimately we, I believe that if people are inside, but they've paid their dues, they've done their time, then they should come home. Uh, these cases can become politically toxic, as you there's know. No, there's um, no doubt. A lot of the no opposition doubt. has been, you don't want to put it on a party, but it can be some of the Republican senators over the years. And some of my Democratic colleagues, too. Mm -hmm. That is correct. And obviously members of the police union, uh, the, the PBAs and such. Um, you know, one of the cases that I think you cite as an inspiration to par parole reform is uh, Mr. Farid. Is that? That is correct. Passed tell away. me a little bit about his that example <coughs> of, um, you know, a, a case that could have been politically toxic. Wasn't it an attempted murder of a police officer, yes. among other things? Let, let's start with some basics. If you believe as an individual that there are some things that somebody, if somebody does some things that they should not be forgiven for them, then I have nothing for you. 
then whatever else I say will fall on deaf ears. And, you know, that's that you have certainly a right to feel that way. I do not believe that that is the case. As I stated earlier, I do not believe that any human being should be defined by the worst thing that they did. So in the case of Mr. Farid, he was convicted of an attempted murder of a police officer. Now, that is a serious offense. And now, an attempted murder for anybody is a, is a serious offense. But of a police officer, obviously, it takes a particular level you know, of person to actually do that. And the thing is, Mr. Farid was convicted of that. He served time. He accepted that he did that. He acknowledged that he did that. He asked for forgiveness for doing that. And on top of that, then started to make himself better. He educated himself inside, behind bars. He became a, an interpreter for people hard of hearing. He learned like, you know, sign language, etc., to be able to be, to be helpful to folks who are hard of hearing or deaf. The point is that Mr. Farid was an example of people who have tried to make their lives better, who have committed to recognizing the mistakes that they have made, and they've tried to become better people. So it can become politically, p- politically fraught, and I get that. My response to them, to anybody who has a, a, a problem with it, is I would tell them, like I, like I just said, you might, you might not be in agreement with me because you might think that there are things that people can never be forgiven for. So if that's the case, I got nothing for you. But in most instances, if an individual has committed a crime but has actually changed their ways, has become a better person, has strived to be a better person, has tried to make other people better while they're inside. And the examples are there. I've had so many uh, opportunities to work with formerly incarcerated people who are now back outside, have been have become part of different uh, you know advocacy organizations, have become part active parts of their community, and have, have become valuable members of it. Why are we stopping those individuals from doing that just because of something that they did, which again, they've accepted responsibility for and they've paid their dues about? I, I believe that we as a society have to start asking ourselves tough questions about, we are asking ourselves very tough questions about the criminal justice system. This is a morality a question, isn't it? It's exactly. Not, it's not just reform. It's, exactly. it's how do we feel from a, for, from a moral point of view? How do we feel from a moral point of view? Because we, this is what I'm saying. We have, to, we have to start with very basics. How do we view our our societies, what is our society's view on punishment? What is our society's view on crime? If we, there are some individuals who believe that, that criminal activity is something that is, I don't know, innate in someone that might be, you know, I, something that's in their genes, you know, genetic and what have you, and driven by something that's far, you know, deeper and dark, etc. And we've seen enough movies with serial killers to convince us that there's one around every corner. That's not the reality. Crime is a much more complicated matter. We have been discussions currently, for example, in this whole discussion about bail reform, about how for many, many generations, poverty has been criminalized. When you think about the fact that, you know, certainly innocent until proven guilty, but just a few blocks from where we are right now, Harvey Weinstein is waiting for a judgment to come down. Now, this is somebody who allegedly has been a serial predator of dozens and dozens of women. He's destroyed women's lives left and right. But since he's a millionaire, he got to go home and chill in his million-dollar pad while he waited for this whole process to just, you know, do itself, you know, carry itself out. And Khalif Browder, 
who was a constituent of mine, a young man who was 16, was arrested for allegedly stealing a backpack, spent three years at Rikers Island because he refused to say that he was guilty of something he had never done. Ultimately, the, the charges were dropped. He spent two of those years in, in, in solitary confinement because he couldn't afford bail. He ultimately committed suicide because of the PTSD that was a result of all the stuff that he suffered inside. So we have to deal with our vision of what is punishment, what is crime, how we approach it. Senator Rivera is not without his critics, and he knows it. Police chiefs, police unions, victims groups, many in his own legislature. They question the wisdom of these proposed changes. And, and by the way, Lundy had made very clear about this. I do not, I do not, I'm not saying that there should be anarchy in the streets. Right, you're not soft on crime, I was going to say. Yeah, <clears throat> this is not, about, this is being not a, about being soft on crime. This is about being smarter on crime. This is about thinking about, you know, why does somebody, why does a 17-year-old commit robbery? If we have a 17 or an 18-year-old that commits robbery, should we not figure out why that person, why that kid had no other options that they saw for themselves? If you believe that there is something genetic that they just have to go and stick up somebody, then, you know, then it is what it is. But I think it's more complicated than that. If there's an 18-year-old in my neighborhood who's a black and brown kid who has, you know, stressful family life, who doesn't really have see job opportunities or education opportunities and he needs money and what have you and try to maybe sell drugs to try to provide for his family. Like there's, there's, it's a little bit more complicated. So we have to think about what type of investments we make in our system to make sure that things like that don't happen. And, and then as I'm dealing with parole, we've already done so much. The way that we've organized ourselves for so long has had such impacts that we need to think about how we deal those and how we dial some of that back. And so for individuals who are currently incarcerated, who have served their time, and I repeat, once again, have committed mistakes, have done things that are wrong, but they've accepted it, they've acknowledged it, they've done everything that they could to make themselves and other people better, then we should give them an opportunity to come back to society. Could there be, and is there discussion about cop killers or um you know exceptions to this or making it making rule, different different rules does that help you with the pba or police chiefs or anything like that that, 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 that i'm not going to say that that's not difficult uh, because there have been i actually spoke on on the floor of the senate about one such case of someone who was denied for parole 10 times so he spent like an extra 20 years inside after he'd already spent 15 or 18 um, and he ultimately committed suicide inside prison. Excuse me. Um, and it was somebody that had been that had been a uh, that 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 actually killed a police officer. So I'm not denying that those are things that that are bad, and I'm not saying that that those individuals shouldn't be held responsible. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, what is how do we actually hold those people responsible, and what do we what is it is it worth it as a society? To keep someone inside indefinitely, forever, um, basically just shut them off from society, yeah. warehouse them. Um, you know, it, it, does it does it make sense? Now, for some people, it might. I don't think it's so. I don't think it's so. I think it has to be judged on an individual basis. Um, and I think that there are folks who have committed heinous crimes who can, again, should not be defined by the worst thing that they ever did. And that's that obviously doesn't get me many fans in certain circles, but it is what it is what experience has taught me. 
I mean, there might be people who say that Harvey Weinstein, if convicted, um, should never see the light of day. And at his age, he may not. But, but just because, of, you know, the <laughs> heinous aspect and the things that, if you believe them, that he did in terms of using his money to, uh, to silence witnesses, uh, to push his influence in different ways, to push his influence within the district attorney's office, if you believe some of Without it. Without a doubt. See, the question is, do we believe that justice should be vengeance? And in the case of Harvey Weinstein, as an example, he absolutely needs to be held accountable for his crimes, alleged crimes. But I don't know, while we're sitting here recording, the, you know, the, the verdict might have come out. But once it I does... I know. They'd be jumping around, pointing at me. <laughs> and we're, exactly. we're in the middle of the newsroom. They'd, pull, they, they'd get like, get out! We yeah. need to go, to, need to go live. <laughs> so, uh, but but whenever, whenever this person, let's say that, that he is indeed found guilty, and I think every indication, even though I have not been sitting in the courtroom every day, every indication is that there's plenty of evidence that this is a that this is a, 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 a predator that needs to be held accountable. That person does need to go to jail, but does he need to go to jail forever? Maybe, I don't know, maybe he's, maybe he's, he will not be repentant. But let's say that he actually does have a change of heart, that he spends five, ten years inside, and he makes a determination that he accepts what he has done, that he tries to make amends, that he actively seeks out individuals who he has harmed and reaches out to them and says, I know that I've harmed you and I, and I know that I can't change that, but I can at least try to both apologize and try to make it up to you by being a better person. That might happen. I don't know. We have to, we have to be consistent on this. Is, it, is our justice system supposed to be just a, an, a tool of vengeance? Because if it's a tool of vengeance, then again, it's, you know, we're living in you know, in the 1980s during, you know, uh, during Rambo times or what have you. And, and I think that we need to strive for better. So again, everyone should be held accountable for the things that they do. I'm a big believer in accountability. It's the reason why I'm in the Senate. The guy who was there before me needed to be held accountable. He then spent six years in federal prison for stealing public money. He served his time. He's back home now. I'm hoping that he used that time to recognize that his actions disrespected the community that he was supposed to represent. So he's paid his dues. I would say that the same is true for anybody else. Do, and for us as a society, do we believe that a justice system should strictly be about vengeance and punishment? Or should we think beyond that? And for those who may not know about parole, it, it's not like they open the door and say goodbye. There, there is monitoring. There <laughs> will be accountability if there's, there are crimes committed. You'll yeah, be and thrown a, back in. And, and for, first, there's, there's a process. Even with the changes that I proceed, that, that I propose in this bill... The changes would still allow and give the the authority to the parole board to make the assessment of whether this person is a threat to society because that's ultimately that is what the parole board's job is supposed to be. It's to assess. Now you have been found guilty of whatever crime. You've served your time. Now that your time is done, can you go back to society? Our job is to assess whether you would be a danger if you go back. And in most instances, regardless of what that person does, during their their stay inside because of what they did to get there then they're judged and said well you need to stay inside forever again now that's that's not the way it should work and it's not so easy because even if you look at bail reform there are examples of folks that that were let out and obviously the the opponents to the reform are quick to to raise up all of those examples of someone that was let out uh, and and committed a crime it's never going to be a perfect system. Never. But then but then those same individuals that are criticizing, to talk about bail reform for a second, they're neglecting to mention 
the thousands of people who have been able to go back home at the end of the day after they've been arrested for whatever crime that they are not guilty of. Being arrested doesn't mean you're guilty of anything. It means you're going to be accused potentially of something, even at that point. Like I described Khalif Browder earlier. He was arrested. He was charged. Those charges were ultimately dropped. He wasn't even prosecuted for supposedly stealing this backpack. So there are currently thousands of people who have been able to go back home at the end of the day, have not lost their job, have not lost access to their kids, have been able to stay in their homes or stay in the shelters that they live in, et cetera, et cetera. Those cases are not talked about. This, what is happening right now is a lot of fear mongering, a lot of, a lot of lies trying to confuse the larger, the larger point. The system that we had been using forever and that in many instances still exists is one that criminalizes poverty, does so in a racialized way, and has done so for generations. This thing that we have right now, the bill that we've passed and the, the laws that are in effect, it's been a few months, literally a few months, as opposed to a few generations of a bail system that criminalized poverty. So guess what? I'm going to wait this out. I need more information. I will not bow to criticism that is based strictly on lies and fear. If you're telling me page 7, line 5 of this bill does X, and therefore I am going to, I can't really be with you on that one, then that's a legitimate concern. And let's talk about page 5, line 7, subsection B. Let's talk about that. That's not what's happening right now. What's happening right now is like there are people that are, you know, there's the, the, the stories are like, this person is on the streets, this person is this, this person is that. In many instances, by the way, misinformation has been put out there, and then people run with it. Again, as opposed to talking about the thousands of people whose lives have been changed in the positive, because they've been able to not get stuck inside the criminal justice system like they had been if it was December 31st, 2019, or before that. So guess what? I'm going to wait this out. I'm going to see what is actually occurring before I go forward with any type of changes. So to try and bring it full circle uh, in terms of um, the Fair and Timely Parole Act, if you get a chance to get this voted on this year, is the best way to describe it that currently the system uh, does not really give uh, parole board members, um, does not encourage them to consider... Uh, what has occurred since the crime has occurred and what you're trying to do is at least add that to the equation as part of this deal as opposed to allowing someone to completely discount what has happened since the crime has occurred. That is exactly right. Well, what I'm trying, what we're trying to do with this bill is to give explicitly say to parole board members, you must consider in a real way and weigh it in a real way who these people are today, not who they were the day that they committed whatever crime they're in here for. And that's that's ultimately what we're saying. They still have the authority to say, we believe that you will present a danger to society if you go back out. I mean, listen, uh, what's his name with the with, with the freaking swastika on his on his Manson. On his forehead? Manson. All right. Manson uh, probably needs to remain inside for a while. You know, I don't know if he's has he's he passed dead. away. Yeah. He's passed away. It's yeah. one of those dead or alive kind of things you can win in a bar. <laughs> exactly. Dead. Thank you for the rest of. For, for, I will keep that in my head. The point was during his incarceration, he did not demonstrate that he had changed. He demonstrated that he was still not 
not very right in the head and that he would very likely commit some other heinous heinous crimes if he was let outside. But that's one dude. Right. Those are exceedingly rare cases. We're not talking about those folks. The, the role of the parole board is to assess whether someone is a danger to society. And what my bill would do is change the law to make sure that they take into account in a real way and weigh in a real way who the people that they're that they're that they're looking at, who they are today, not who they were the the, the day that they committed whatever crime they're inside for. I'm I'm guessing that the stickiest part of this for you has been and will be um, cop killers or people involved in crime because the PBA is a pretty strong. Uh, you know, political, not not political, I give money to political, but people do want to find ways to support cops because they put their lives on the line for us. And so, you know, I guess my, my final question is, what do you <clears throat> say? What do you say when you're in the room with PBA people or police chiefs or uh, law enforcement folks that challenge you on that topic? Well, the first thing I'd say is that the overwhelming majority of the people that this would be impacting have nothing to do with those types of crimes. So I would say, let's have, let's, let's, uh, let's acknowledge that the, that the resistance that you have might be for a particular class, and we'll talk about that in a second, but that the overwhelming majority of people who would be positively impacted by this are people who are not accused of anything that heinous. That's number one. And number two, I would say to them that we probably have a difference of opinion on whether somebody can, you know, can redeem themselves. There, there's, there's individuals that might be listening to this eventually or who are police officers or families of police officers that believe that such a thing should not be forgiven. And I will understand and respect that. But I believe, again, that if we're going to have as a society a conversation amongst ourselves about what our justice system is supposed to be, then I believe that in the conditions that I have outlined, if someone is has been, has uh, has assessed responsibility, has accepted responsibility, has tried to seek forgiveness for that act and has done everything in their power to try to become a better person, then they should be given an opportunity to come back out. Um, And for those folks who do not agree with me because they believe that there are some actions which are not forgivable and that they should remain inside forever or worse, then I'm just, we're just going to have to respectfully disagree. As 2019 ended, it appeared that this idea of parole reform was gaining steam in New York and might actually have some promise this year. But the renewed debate over the new bail reform law and how it's worked out could hurt the chances of the legislature's stomach for any additional reform. Still, Senator Rivera tells me that none of this stuff is easy, and he remains committed and believes in reform so much that he will promise to keep up the fight. You've been listening to 880 In-Depth, our weekly deep dive on a topic of importance in our community. If you like the podcast, we encourage you to subscribe, listen to it every week, and tell a friend. I'm Tim Schell. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t